Welcome back to a brand new episode of Teen to Life. I am here with Lisa and I'll be asking her a lot of questions. She is an integrity commissioner here in Vancouver, uh, BC, and also a parks... Integrity commissioner for the parks board of Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be asking her a lot of questions about that and hopefully someone listening to this would like to um, get into something similar or even the same as Lisa because it's a very interesting position to be in um, and I'll let you just speak on about that. So first question I'll ask you is what is an integrity commissioner and what do they do? Okay, so um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll kind of back up a little bit. In, yeah. in Canada, um, different provinces have, have dealt with whether or not they're going to have integrity commissioners or codes of conduct that are required for municipal governments uh, in, in the provinces. So it's, mm-hmm. it's different in every province. Okay. Um, in Ontario, it's actually mandated that every single city, village, any municipality in Ontario has to have two things. They have to have a code of conduct, mm-hmm. and the code of conduct governs the um, the, the conduct and ethics of the elected officials. So not dealing with the employees that work within that municipality, but dealing with the city council, the mayor, uh, those elected officials. Um, so in, in, in Ontario, you've got mandated codes of conduct and you have mandated integrity commissioners. And the reason for that is it can be very tricky for an organization like a municipality to know how to investigate or how to uh, address complaints that come in about elected officials. You can imagine they are like, they're the highest part of that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. If there's a complaint that involves them, who has the authority, uh, who has that sort of external lens that they can come in and investigate that highest level of the organization. So it's very challenging. Like I say, Ontario has, has addressed it by making it a, a mandated legislated uh, requirement. Mm-hmm. In BC, it's a little different. So in BC, all of our municipalities have to consider whether or not they are uh, they they want to have and adopt a code of conduct. Um, they have the choice to do so or not. So some of our municipalities don't have codes of conduct. Um, uh, some of them have decided to uh, to create them. Uh, if if a municipality decides not to create a code of conduct, all it needs to do is report out some reasons why. Like it was considered and they've decided they don't need one and here's I some see. rationale okay. why. But in BC, there's no requirement um, at all to have an integrity commissioner. So what, what, hmm. we're, what we're gonna see is that we've got municipalities that have codes of conduct, but they don't have sort of a, a, a person or an office that actually then uh, processes and enforces those, those codes of conduct through process. Um, there's two exceptions to that. Uh, currently, and I think some of the other uh, municipalities are getting on board as well. I think we're going to see more, but the the big two exceptions in the province of BC are Surrey, mm-hmm. uh, and they uh, don't call the the role there the integrity commissioner. They call it the um, ethics commissioner, ethics officer. Okay. Um, and then the other big uh, exception is the city of Vancouver, and uh, they implemented uh, a, a, what I think is an exceptional code of conduct. And they also created the position or the office of the integrity commissioner so that they have a mechanism um, through which if complaints come in about council members, they can be um, they can be investigated. So that's a little bit of background about sort of the, uh-huh. the role itself. So you asked okay. me, um, what do I do in that role? Again, this is all mandated by the code of conduct, which was created in 2001 it was um uh it was created and my uh position started my appointment uh january of 2022 so i'm just coming into the final part of my first term which is two years mm-hmm. um my job is there's really four elements to it mm-hmm. um the first one is the one that i, I think we're going to talk about probably the most today and so it's the investigation function so when a complaint comes in and it's within my jurisdiction, um, the first thing I, I might look at, and, and it's um, part of the process, is whether or not there can be an informal resolution to it. So sometimes there might be a mediated response that actually satisfies everybody and it doesn't require mm-hmm. a formal investigation. 
If that's not the case, then we must do an investigation. So um, go through the process, understand the allegations, make sure folks have a fair and um, full opportunity to respond, and then ultimately um, make findings of fact uh, about whether or not there's been a violation of the code of conduct. So that's, that's sort of a, a very core part of what we do. Um, but we don't just do that. We also have an education function, which I think is really important. Um, one of the things, and folks have heard me around here say this uh, in, in our offices here, I, I spend a lot of time in reactive space. That's what an investigation is. It's a reaction to something that's occurred that you know at least one individual feels like is in violation of, of a, an obligation that exists. Uh, I don't actually like spending a lot of time in reaction. I prefer to spend my time as much as possible in preventative measures. So proactive things to, to help support folks making the right decisions and not getting into spaces mm -hmm. where investigations uh, come to the fore. So education is a key component of that. And we um, provide education to the city of Vancouver and to the parks board in a few different ways. Um, we have websites for both uh, that we try to populate with information that will be helpful to both the public and to um, the city councillors uh, and the park board commissioners. Um, we can issue bulletins. So we might get an issue that comes up from the public. And at the end of the day, we find, it, you know, there's no jurisdictional, no, no jurisdiction, or we find that there's no violation, but uh -huh. we still actually want to create a bulletin with some information in it that helps the public and council kind of understand the issue and understand the law. So we educate through the bulletins. Uh, we educate through our decisions because they're published online. Uh, and we also do education throughout um, the the term of city council, throughout our term of appointment. So, uh, gosh, we probably do about five educational functions uh, or presentations uh, a year. And one of the changes that was made at the conclusion of our first year, we get to make recommendations. And we made a recommendation that the training actually become mandatory for all members of council. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is, is really important right, to make right. sure that it's, you know, folks are busy. And I, I I really appreciate that. But it's about accountability and transparency. And so if, if they don't attend the education that's put on through the year, it's actually reported in my annual report that they did not actually take that education hmm. it's it's a very similar way that the law society makes sure that lawyers continue to be educated right. and do their continuing um, uh, development they mandate for us that we must do a certain amount of education every year including ethics and then if you don't do it there's actually there's a there's a a punitive monetary outcome to you as a member of the law society that you've not met your requirements obviously i'm not going to like create monetary uh punishment for folks but the idea that the public could then have access to see like who's gone to the training and who didn't take the time to to learn around important matters like conflicts of interest uh, is um is an outcome um sorry i'm kind of going on no, a lot no, here but good. so the first again is is dealing with um, processing complaints the second is education the third is advice it's also a proactive space so being available to counsel if questions arise that they're trying to navigate you know the complexity of the role that they mm -hmm. have i think there is um a bit of uh, misunderstanding i by the the general public about the, the the role and how complex it is most members of council or many members of council come to this for the first time they've had other careers they've been business people or right. educators right. or i mean it can be a host of different pathways that have got themselves into politics and often municipal governance or school board governance is the first taste that they've ever had of this world and it's really really different than any sort of traditional career pathway and the requirements for um you know um ethics and public scrutiny and confidence are much different than if you're you know you're um, in the case of Marison running businesses or uh, in the case of other counselors like I said if you've been a, uh, a school teacher and then all of a sudden you're thrust into this world it's complex uh, I, th I think we can do more to support better learning for them about what this world means even before people mm -hmm. decide to run for office 
because I don't think they know what they're getting into to some degree. And then as a result, it can be really challenging for them to navigate and do it successfully in that in that first year yeah. in particular or throughout the course. Um, so providing a space for advice is also a proactive way that I can try to help them navigate um, some of the issues that are complex. And I would say probably, and, and again, from a sort of public perception, it's probably people think that navigating a conflict of interest is very easy. It's actually not. It's probably the most complex of all the issues that we grapple with about when that conflict is such that somebody needs to recuse themselves and take themselves out of the public debate and out of actually fulfilling their duties as a member of council. Mm -hmm. um, the last uh, function that we have is community outreach. And that's kind of what we're doing today is at those moments in time, whether or not it's the uh, media outlets or other organizations asking for um, time to talk about the work that um, I'm doing and what the city and council have invested in here um, is, is another function. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you guys brought up the issue that the new people that would get into these positions weren't being trained enough. Is that correct? Well, I, I think I'm always going to say that about it. Okay. Every position where people are brand new. But again, it's really complex, like the the, the amount of scrutiny. You know, imagine that suddenly uh, you're you're sitting there and you're, and you're thinking through all the possible conflicts that you have from friends and family to relationships and, and how that actually might impact your ability right. to right. participate in, in public debate and, and fulfill your function to the... Um, to the electors who have put you into office to, to do X, you know, mm -hmm. I'll just make up a scenario, but you know, you're, you're, you're out in the neighborhood and you're talking to your neighbors who are also your friends who have like, you know, parents of kids that go to school. There's all these relationships, but part of the, you know, mandate that you've had is that you're going to really advocate to get a soccer pitch in that neighborhood. Okay, but you live in that neighborhood. So are, are you allowed to actually participate in, in decisions and conversations right. and, and if it's actually going to benefit your neighborhood? But that's actually one of the things that you ran on and that you promised to your electorate that you would try to fulfill. Mm -hmm. But in fact, you've got a conflict there. So just navigating yeah. those things can be really, really hard. And I do think that we need to do more for folks, they often get inundated in the first couple of weeks of uh, holding office with days worth of um, education. That's not a great way to educate anybody. It, you know, it's probably quite overwhelming and hard to retain. So ongoing learning throughout the term, I think, is the way to go. And again, like making sure that it's made a priority for folks to, to have that time and that education is pretty key. Mm -hmm. What does a day in the office for an integrity commissioner look like? Oh, for me? Well, okay. So and one of the things that um, I, I should explain is that it's it's actually not a full-time role that I have as the integrity oh, okay. commissioner right okay so I I have a contract with the city of Vancouver mm -hmm. to run the integrity commissioner office okay um, uh, we have a team here because you can imagine sometimes it can be very busy right 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 it gets quite busy I'll share with you in the months coming up to election so that that is I, a is a tricky time for I sure, guess, yeah. and we can talk about that a little bit more about sort of um, how those things can get managed. Um, but the team is comprised of myself, uh, Emily Harrison in our office, who monitors the email that can come in and and make sure that she keeps us on track in terms of ongoing uh, files and and making sure that we're doing them in a timely way. And I have two uh, lawyers here who are part of the office as well. And we're actually adding a third lawyer to the team, again, just to make sure that we've got the bandwidth for when issues come up that we can respond in a timely way, because mm -hmm. it isn't a full-time role. Right, right. Um, so you asked me what my world looks like. At the same time, uh, I'm running a law firm uh, that is dedicated to this type of work, but broadly for workplaces or uh, uh, places of learning like uh, post-secondary or K to 12 and also sports. So mm -hmm. issues that come up around uh, either respectful conduct, ethics, um, frankly, behavior, misconduct, uh, our firm uh, gets retained to come in as external uh, resources to come in and do uh, an investigation when the organization itself doesn't feel like it's equipped or it's appropriate for it to, to do it internally, like with somebody like HR or if we're talking about a sports team, like one of the assistant coaches, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. 
how sorry how yeah. often would you receive a complaint mm. okay so how uh, often no, big I, complaints small complaints how often do you receive them i it's again it, there's a flux there and i can mm-hmm. say i've got this benefit now looking back at the first year and the first year was an election cycle so it's sort of it, i we certainly had and we've got all the statistics in in the first while it sort of like built a little and but then it actually got quite busy in the, in the months pre elections i would say and i don't hold me to this because i don't have the stats right in front of me but at the busiest we were getting maybe two a week yeah um uh so eight a month uh at the busiest time Mm, i would say with a new council it's been quieter this year uh Mm -hmm. maybe one a week yeah maybe it's gone down by about 50 percent um, and I, I have to be totally candid. Some of them have nothing to do with the code of conduct. Like our jurisdiction is quite limited. So you can imagine okay. we actually get quite a lot of complaints that are about city stuff. So, you know, not happy with a bylaw officer or not happy with a particular like And policy. you guys would take care of that? We don't. Okay. We don't. So we do get complaints that come to us that we're like, this is outside right, right, of right. our jurisdiction. Our jurisdiction is really narrow. Um, but what we try to do, again, for me, this is part of that community service, is guide that citizen to where they would go oh, to see. actually have that adjudicated. So so that comes okay. up for sure. Is there is, is, is there an influx between very serious cases and not serious cases if that's a that makes sense yeah um you you know again if i were to look back on last year there was certainly more cases that um raised concerns that were quite serious under the code of conduct in the months leading to that election Election. cycle and there's there's a couple of reasons for that one is that it, it becomes a little bit of a tool um, that can be, and the terminology, this is not my terminology, but that is used is it can be weaponized. So using complaints, making uh, allegations against people that are running can obviously have a very negative impact on their success in the election itself. So there, there is a concern about using the process in a bad faith way in order to manipulate Mm-hmm. Um, uh, outcomes of the election and the the city of Vancouver actually tried to manage that to some degree by creating freezes so as we get closer to an election for a while I have a discretion about whether or not I'm going to investigate if I'm, if I'm concerned that it's actually something that is more politically driven than okay. uh, than, okay. than, than brought for the purposes of, of which the code was put into place and then there's actually a mandated freeze on um, time zone that it's too close to the election and the concern again is that it might have uh, an impact on the voters and that's not what we're here to do we're not mm-hmm. here to manipulate um that that process by any stretch um but the the other reason why there's i think a more of an influx at that time number one the public is scrutinizing and council are scrutinizing each other more at that time i think as we get closer to an election and people are talking more so what you have is the um uh politicians speaking to the community you know, uh, communicating on Twitter or social media, being more active and more vocal as well. And that can create issues around what they're saying and whether or not that actually concerns citizens that what they're saying is mm-hmm. is contrary to their ethical obligations. Right. What is the most common complaint and report you guys get? Is there one that pops up more than others? You know, so... I'm going to pull back from the city and I'm going to, because our experience at the city, I think is actually very similar to, um, when, when I applied for the job, it was quite a rigorous uh, process. I was asked to do a presentation. We all, all the candidates were, and we were asked sort of, what do you see as the top topics and issues that are are the most challenging for, Mm -hmm. um, uh, for council members and that integrity commissioners need to, to sort of focus on. Uh, and so we did um, a, a legal review of integrity commissioners' decisions across Canada, but also looking at other jurisdictions like London, England, and New York City. Like you can look at these decisions, and you can identify what the top topics are. 
and it is consistent with um, uh, our experience as well. So I've already touched on one, and it's conflicts of interest. So concerns that folks need to be recusing themselves um, from uh, their their duties because they uh, have a you know a significant. Um, personal connection or a pecuniary and monetary uh, benefit that could flow to them um, from the decision uh, that they are participating in. So that's certainly like within the top three. Mm-hmm. Communication is a big one. So what's being said? So uh, whether or not it's um, a speech that is uh concerning from a human rights perspective. So if you have an elected official that are um, is out there and making discriminatory um, comments, then that's going to be a, a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hate speech, obviously, a, a problem. Um, so communication, and in particular, I would say on social media. It's uh, just understanding that they might have even personal accounts, but if they're using that personal account really um, to convey their message as a a member of the uh, city council, then it can be uh, scrutinized under the code of conduct and even the charter uh, could could apply depending on on that account mm-hmm. and how connected it is to actually the work or versus it being more of a, of a personal account. Um, the third area that you see uh, more frequently, and again, this is across Canada, it's not unique to, um, to, to any specific space. Um, and, and, and we have not actually dealt with this issue um, ourselves at the city of Vancouver, but is, is conduct to staff. Like it could be very challenging for folks to navigate that space between the, the staff and city council. It can be hard for the staff and it can be hard for city council to understand how those two worlds connect. So there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of decisions out there about um, uh, complaints have been brought Again, not within my space, but to other integrity commissioners, lots in Ontario and, and across Canada, where you're looking at the, the behavior of the elected officials and how uh, it's impacting in a negative way the, the, the workplace um, and the health and safety of the employees in that space. Mm-hmm. So a bit off topic, yeah. if, if someone was to um, talk in a discriminatory manner mm-hmm. to someone, and that person was to complain, could the person who did talk in not a very nice way to that person, could they argue that they have freedom of speech? Mm-hmm. And if so, how, how do those issues get resolved mm-hmm. with, the, with the hate speech, discriminatory talk, and freedom of speech? Right. Okay, it's, it's a really good question. Um, uh, there are limits. So freedom of speech is not, it's not unlimited. There are limits that uh, courts will uphold. Uh, if they see that it, it is, um, you know, a reasonable limit, uh, and for instance, like within the code of conduct, absolutely, like we we have to interpret the code of conduct from a lens of freedom of expression is incredibly important. And let's face it, politicians are there because we want them to be expressing freely. And sometimes what they're going to say is controversial. Sometimes what they're going to say will not be liked. Right. But there are limits to that. And the limit for under the code of conduct, the limit as quite clearly would be a human rights violation. So yes, you have the right to express yourselves. That doesn't mean that you have the right to engage in what would be um, a, a violation of the human rights code within that speech. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and that that's I mean that it, it's a very similar application to the charter, right? So yes, you, there's a freedom of expression, but there can be reasonable limits placed on that, um, and that's scrutinized by the court. And things like hate speech will be a reasonable limit on appropriate expression. And that the court will decide later on what they would consider too far and not too far. That's right. For the hate speech. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When, okay. when it comes, if it was a charter challenge, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, in in my world, it's me making determination about that under the code of conduct. It like has the speech. Is it provocative and difficult and uncomfortable? That's still within the realm. Is it discriminatory? That's going to be a violation of the code of conduct. I see. Okay. Yeah. If you don't mind, we'll move back into your uh, earlier life. Um, how was it growing up? Did you know that you wanted to oh. get it, you know, become an integrity commissioner, or was it something that popped up later uh, during high school or later in life? 
Oh, gosh. Well, okay. So I'm, I'm not sure that I ever really thought that I was going to be an integrity <laughs> commissioner. So uh, uh, if I if I go right back, I think I wanted to be in the army, but it's very complicated reasons for that. And it okay, involves okay. watching yeah. far too much television and, oh. and, and watching the show MASH. Um, uh, I think pretty early on, I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. Uh, and I didn't really know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. I went to, I, I'm, I, I was actually born in Manchester, England, but then moved to Canada when I was six. Uh, grew up in London, Ontario, and I went to the University of Western Ontario for undergrad, but I actually only did two years. So I did two years and it was in a program that was a bit of a mix of things, but it had business and economics. And, and I, I actually really, I, I quite enjoyed the business courses for sure. Um, this is embarrassing to say on your podcast, but I'm going to say it. Uh, it. In order to finish that degree, mm-hmm. I was told I was missing calculus from high school. I had oh, not no. taken calculus in high school. And so to finish the degree, I was told I'd have to go to summer school <laughs> and take calculus. high school calculus. <laughs> yeah. And so I had finished the, or was coming to the end of my second year. I wasn't really that keen on the degree anyway. I kind of fell into it a little bit. Uh, and I decided to write the LSAT and then I did okay on the LSAT. And so I applied to three different law schools. Uh, at that time, I don't think this exists anymore, but at that time you could get into law school without finishing your degree. So I, I got into, um, a a couple of law schools I applied to and Mm -hmm. I decided to go to Osgoode, which is, um, in Toronto, uh, connected to York university. Uh, so went in after uh, two years. I was actually very young. Um, I think I started law school when I was 19 or 20. I, mm-hmm. I graduated from law school when I was 22 and I okay. became a member of the bar when I was like just on the cusp of turning 23. So I, I actually finished my university degree at UBC. Uh, yeah, so I yeah. went to my my parents sort of laugh at me because I went to three different schools and got one degree. I went to UWO for two years. I went to Osgood for two, and then I transferred out to UBC for my last year. Uh, and and but you get your degree from the place that you actually studied the most. So I, I my degrees from Osgood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, you have to go through an articling process here in British Columbia. I mean, you you, you do in Ontario as well. I was really fortunate to get an opportunity to work in a law firm that's, it's now Faskins. At the time, it was called Russell and Dumoulin. And it had the largest labor department in British Columbia. And I, uh, I just kind of fell in love with labor and employment and human rights law, in part because it's, I mean, the, the law itself is really interesting, but most of what we do is about people. It's just it's about people and about people at work or at school or and uh, and and the challenges that people face and sometimes the mistakes that people make in the, in the space. Um, so for me, maybe maybe this is similar to like what draws people to family law, but that idea of spending time working on things that were fundamentally about people was very very attractive for mm-hmm. me. Um, don't worry, I'm going to get to the integrity commissioner here. Uh, the, the pathway from there, I, again, I was really, really lucky. At, at, at about a seven-year call, I was asked to go to the Labor Relations Board, and I was appointed by the government at the time to be what's called a vice chair at the Labor Board. Mm-hmm. So what the vice chairs do is they are like judges sitting and deciding cases that fall under the Labor Relations Code of British Columbia. So like whether or not a union gets certified to a workplace or decertified in a workplace. Um, if there's going to be a strike, whether it's a legal strike um, or uh, if an employer's locking out, whether it's a legal lockout, dealing with all the collective bargaining and collective agreements, like really, really interesting work. But And this is sort of when we start to get to that pathway of integrity commissioner. I stopped being an advocate I stopped arguing for one side or the other, and I started sitting in a space of neutrality. So that kind I of see. like judge or arbitrator or adjudicator right. role. Yeah. And I think for some folks, um, when I went back to private practice, they might have thought I was a bit of a, a broken lawyer. And in some respect, I was because I had a very hard time not seeing what the solution was as opposed to getting really passionate about the argument. I, I, win or loss it just it right. wasn't sort of my frame of reference anymore 
So I decided to actually focus my practice on something different. This is where I start my own firm, not just me at a kitchen table originally um, uh, doing investigations. Uh, and being asked by organizations to come in and and be that person that's more arm's length, that doesn't come with any bias, that can go in and have the skills to make sure that the process is fair for all right. and people are respected throughout it, but that there's clear findings of fact at the end that they can then decide what they need to do about. So, so that progressed to this firm and our firm here, Southern Butler Price, is the largest in Western Canada now. We have 30 wow. lawyers. Uh, we uh, support uh, organizations across Canada. Uh, we have offices in Alberta as well. So uh, all of that to say um, the integrity commissioner role is very similar to that work that we do where we're coming in as this external resource, managing processes and complaints and making sure that there are clear findings of fact that can then be actioned uh, for outcomes if, if necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, I, th- I think it, the integrity commissioner role came uh, my way because I was um, I got an email from a headhunter saying yeah. that the city of Vancouver's created this fabulous that's my I'm, I'm paraphrasing but it's true fabulous bylaw yeah. and great code of conduct and they're looking for an integrity commissioner would you be interested and I, I looked at it and I said absolutely because I do think you know Part of why there's so many investigations in workplaces is because um, WorkSafe changed its legislation in 2013 to Mm -hmm. make it a requirement that all workers be trained, that there be policies around being treated properly in the workplace, and that employers need to investigate if there's concerns that that folks are are not being treated appropriately. Um, What's been very interesting for me in my work is to recognize that I, I... kind of say like boots on the ground. So most workers have understood these obligations and are held to account with these obligations for a long time. We get to the senior, most important sort of leaders in our in our society here in, in BC, and in one of those realms is our municipal governments, mm-hmm. and they have not had the same requirements. There's They don't have the same obligations. There's no investigation process similar to what the employees um, uh, are required to do. And it's a gap for sure, whether it's um, appointed boards or uh, boards of private corporations or elected officials, again, school trustees or um, uh, our other elected officials and, and city council. It's it's a gap in, in what we've created here to make sure that our leaders are also held to account. Our leaders are right. held to the highest of ethical standards. Yeah. Um, so it was very appealing to me because I certainly had recognized that gap in the work that I've been doing. And I, I, I think it's important that, um, uh, that the gap be filled. So to be a part of that is, uh, is really, is really great. The other thing I was keen on the role for is because although they said sort of, I don't know if it was January 1st or January 4th, but it's like, okay, now you are the integrity commissioner and here's a whole office. That, but there is no office. There was like, there's no physical office. There was no website. There mm. were no templates. There was no, there was a bylaw, but no like sort of administrative process that would dictate how this is to be done. And that's very appealing. Like we got to build something that didn't yeah, exist yeah. before. And uh, th- this, uh, I have a term, it's a two year term. And we went into this project really with the mindset of we're going to create a, kern, a, a turnkey operation so that the next person that comes in here, we get to hand to them all of these things that we've created that now it can build and be sustainable on a go forward. I see. So I really like that. Yeah. It's kind of one of my favorite things to do is to take nothing and then create a process and a structure that actually supports this kind of work. Mm-hmm. You mentioned how you needed calculus and when you were in high school, you didn't know that you might need calculus later on. I guess for students, this could be a really big issue, especially for those who don't know exactly what they want to do, because then they leave high school, figure out they want to be this or this, but for this or this, you need calculus, uh, this, 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 all these classes that they didn't take, that they didn't know they needed. Could this, in your, in your opinion, how could we fix this? Or is this always going to be the issue of students graduating high school and realizing they needed 
these classes to go where they later do want to go. I, I mean, I, I do think that there's some things that you can do in advance that can help with that. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's, um, uh, and I, I, I wish to this day that I'd done it, but you can actually take an assessment um, of your, not necessarily your strengths, but your passions, like what brings you joy. And uh, I, I know that there's organizations that, that do this. There's one in West Bend that you take this sort of assessment, personal assessment of your joys and mm-hmm. passions, and they align it with the careers that would actually fit for the things that bring you joy. I and then see. they backtrack to like talk about, okay, where are the programs that exist that support you having that career path and what do you need in grade 10 11 and 12 so like taking something like that and i really don't think it should be like an aptitude i think it should be a passion assessment because it's a lifetime but i I think that's the other piece maybe it's not a lifetime like I, i feel like um folks think that they need to have this all figured out very early and and that you've got to get all these courses and you've got to go to that program and it feels um daunting i think for for young people to make those kinds of decisions so early on in life mm-hmm. the, the reality is it, it it's just the beginning of like a very long journey and that right. journey is going to have all types of different roads and you're going to make different decisions throughout like yeah i i didn't take calculus i didn't go into <laughs> business uh, like I had actually been really I was quite passionate about that mm-hmm. I, I went into law but here I am now 30 years later and the reality is I'm running a business like I right, have right, I right. created something that didn't exist before and a large part of what I do is is run this business of this law firm so kind of go full circle anyway and I still haven't taken calculus but it hasn't stopped me from being able right. to create this yeah, yeah, business yeah. right I, I think if it's a lifelong journey, then it stays interesting. And again, you kind of keep holding on to that joy because things can become pretty mundane and mm-hmm. it can feel like the way of the world. I, less so about like making sure you got all the courses before you graduate. I think just like easing up on understanding that it's meant to be an exploration. And okay, this is my best advice. I did not follow this well at all. But like avoid the golden handcuffs. So don't don't do work such that you are so reliant on that income that you don't get opportunities to like explore and play and try other things. So hmm. you know, if possible, always live a little bit below your means so that you get to remain agile to find that joy because it's a, it's a long life and you don't want to spend forty work right. years working in misery. Right. Right. If students aren't sure what they want to do later on, what courses do you suggest would be best for everybody to take? Like, would be best for, like, the real world without a career in mind? Hmm. Gosh. Um, well, and you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw from what my, uh, my dad encouraged. So I wasn't allowed to take spares in high school what does that mean spares like where you don't you 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 don't have a full course load and you sort of get extra time out of your day you know what i mean like so when you hit like 11 and 12 um you might not you've had got enough credits and so you don't need to take them in so so we called those spares and my dad's like absolutely not like there's all this free education that's right there go and learn how to do automotive like basic automotive go and get in the carpentry shop and learn some basic skills so i think Honestly, some of those um, key trades that are there and they're there for the taking are just amazing life skills that everybody should have. And I do feel like folks get too academically focused and they don't even know, like they could be the most talented carpenter in the world or, um, you know, have, have an exceptional uh, career as a plumber. But we like we, we don't give those uh, trades the same due or some folks don't. And I think that's a, a misservice. Um, English. English. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know it can feel, uh, like the, the reading isn't that engaging or there's, you know, um, but it seems to me, and now I'm drawing from looking at my two young sons curriculum, that there's a lot more options for English and what type of English you can take. Um, but at the end of the day, like having good writing skills, having good reading skills is, is really important. Um, 
I'm not going to say anything about chemistry or physics or any of those things. Um, But I I would actually say like, um, like the history, which I think these days is sociology that I I think that those are very important as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we can really think thoughtfully about our future if we haven't understood how we got to where we are. Um, So, and also just really understanding. And I think this is a really important skill today, understanding the experiences of other people and what they bring and how we navigate the complexities of all the different life experiences that people have had um because that can that that can show up in workplaces and be very challenging but like having empathy having some understanding can be um i i think really really important in terms of being successful and having successful professional relationships as well a lot of the people sorry i had on uh also said that finance and psychology could be a good uh subject to take as that would apply everywhere and anywhere. I agree. I agree so, with that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And I mean, just being able to run your own finances, like, yeah, yeah having some of those skills. I was going to say accounting, but I thought everybody would <laughs> boo me or something. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, as we start closing up a bit, I had a few more questions. Yeah. Uh, one of them is based around AI. Have you had any chance to... Uh, gimmick around with the new chat GPT I have or... not it no. seems very scary to me yeah yeah I know I, I, I don't I don't want to sound alarmist but it um yeah it just it feels uh, a little bit frightening like it's Fair like enough. something that could be exceptional or it could be something that is actually quite detrimental yeah people said the exact same thing about the internet when the internet first came it's out true so I mean yeah. big new things are always are always scary but we got to take them in slowly step by step do you see more cons or do you see more pros? I, you know, I, I, I don't, I think the jury's still out on that, but what I worry about is the ethics associated with it. I see. Yeah. And I, I, so I just, you know, like anything, even if we were talking about like medicine and, and like progress within medicine, it needs to be, um, scrutinized and regulated with a regime of ethics in mind. And it doesn't mm-hmm. feel, I mean, like, look at, you're right about the internet and, but look at what it's done, actually. There's like detrimental impact. For that sure. the, the, yeah, yeah. The, and, and so where are the, where's the checks and balances to those things to make sure that we're, we're getting the good and we're not getting yeah. the bad at the same time or that there's ways to manage, manage the bad. So it's the ethical regime that causes me concern. Mm-hmm. What about the value of time? Um, everybody, every single person I've spoke to values time. A lot of people say it comes from... Um, learning about time but a lot of people say it comes from experience to understand the value of time and how to properly value it and you know shape out your day to make it all make sense um what do you what what, what do you think do you think I'm, time I'm, comes with time or does it come with experience i am smiling at you because it is a very different world when you're a lawyer because your whole career is about time because we bill by time Right. So like, believe it or not, as a lawyer, you break down your day into six minute increments, six minutes. Okay. Yeah. So you, you record a point one for every six minutes that you spend on a file. It's, right, it's right. It, what a funny thing to reflect on. I have spent almost 30 years uh, with, with some exceptions, like when I was at the labor board, mm-hmm. but thinking about my life in terms of the, the value of the work I do actually um, uh, translating into time, at least from a billing perspective. Why six minutes? I don't know who created that. Well, you break up the hour, I guess, into uh, into the 10. So it's 0.1 So every six minutes. So if I, if I understand this correctly, every six minutes you work, you write down or... Point one, not necessarily. Okay, so it actually works like this. Like, okay. uh, you know, um, we, some folks use like a, a tracker. But let's say I, I spend an hour and a half working on a memo. Right. Right. So I'm going to put down like the 1.5. But you break that down into 0.1 increments. You, you don't do it that way unless all you did was spend like 0.1 reading an email or something like that. I see. But yeah, no, but then it's funny because I think maybe you forget that like the value of what you do is actually not necessarily associated with whether it was 1.5 or 0.1 or like, you know, I guess one of the challenging things about being a lawyer is it's very hard to, um, I I think, have a long career if you uh, measure your success and the value of what you do with wins and losses. 
You can't mm. do that because so much of whether or not it's a win or a loss is out of your control and it's, you know, it's in the mind of a judge or that third party that's making that decision. Um, in our office, we're obviously not in advocacy, but I know for some folks, it's like it's very important to feel like we're we're trying to make spaces better. We're trying to make sure that there's accountability and transparency and that uh, in, in ethics, and regardless mm -hmm. of, of which organization. Um, but at the end of the day, realistically, sometimes there'll be changes and sometimes there won't. And again, I, I don't think that you can kind of. Um, hold your value to whether or not there actually has been a positive uh, impact. It, it, there could be, there might not be, but certainly going in there and, and doing good work, um, treating people properly, that, I think that's the value that we bring. Mm -hmm. Before we finish off here, could you describe one or two uh, cases that you have solved? What were the reports and what were the cases about? If, if mm -hmm. those, if you could... Well, on, like that. on the city of Vancouver one, it's easier for me to talk about those because they're public, right? Oh, they are. So yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So we, we publish them again, like good on the city of Vancouver because that's that's distinct from Surrey's uh, regime that, huh. that, that they're not published. Um, ours are, and that's city council being very courageous in their leadership saying the yeah, public yeah, yeah. has a right to see this. Um, most of the investigations that we do here uh, at the firm are obviously that they're either privileged or privileged and confidential and, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to, yeah. to discuss them broadly. But, okay, so let's pick two that are on the City of Vancouver uh, website. Yeah, some interesting ones. That, yeah, okay, you know, so, so one of the complaints was brought by a former council member against a former mayor. Um, uh, the former mayor had uh, made a statement that this council member had breached uh, a memorandum of agreement that had been entered into with um, the indigenous communities uh, here in, in the Vancouver area around the Olympics. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the council member wanted to uh, have a plebiscite. They wanted the, the city to vote on whether or not we wanted the Olympics here or not. And the former mayor said that that motion uh, would have been a breach of the promises that have been made to uh, to the First Nations communities, uh, and 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 publicly made those comments about her uh, her mm -hmm. uh, activity there. Um, in fact, her, her motion was not a breach of the memorandum of agreement. It was there was nothing in the memorandum of agreement um, in, in in its written word that would um, restrict going to the citizens of Vancouver and saying, would you, you know, do you want the Olympics or not? Mm -hmm. um, and so that that was an example. Remember you asked me what kind of what are the hot button issues? And I said communication. That was an example of communication being a problem. You also talked about free speech. And it would have, it wouldn't, it's super interesting, or maybe this is just me saying it's interesting, but uh, if the former mayor had said, in my opinion, um, uh, this, you know, may be a violation of this MOA or, you know, it, in my opinion, it violates the spirit of the MOA, it wouldn't have been an issue under the code of conduct because just like you talked about, people have freedom of expression and that's his opinion and he's entitled to it and he's entitled to express it. The, the problem was he didn't frame it that way. He said it violates the MOA. And it didn't violate the MOA and the oh, code of conduct. So it's not just uh, I talked about human rights issues being a limit, but the code of conduct actually says it between themselves. Council have to be very factual about what they say about each other. They can't. They can't. They can't um, uh, go out there and actually um, state misfacts about each other, um, untruthful or inaccurate information about each other. And so that was an example where it was a violation uh, because the way it was framed was actually not true. I see. Okay. Um, you know what? I'm going to give you another one that's on that communication piece as okay. well. Yeah. Okay. So, but this one, our uh, code of conduct actually applies to committee members as well. And so the um, advisory committee members are part of the structure of the city of Vancouver. It means that um, folks are appointed to these committees. They, um, the, the chair of the committee is one of council members and they, um, th you know, they, they are a really helpful way that the citizens can give input to council uh, about uh, decisions that they need to 
make. So it, it, it's a really important mm -hmm. and clever way that it's been um, set up. But the code of conduct parts of it actually apply to these advisory committee members as well. Um, we had an advisory committee member that was on um, Facebook or um, Twitter or maybe both uh, and made a comment about one of the council members and uh, called her the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh. A member of the public read it and said, yeah. that's not okay, actually. Like, it, like Wicked Witch of the West is actually... Um, you know, misogynistic. It's uh, it's uh, gender discrimination, and it's not okay for him. He's clearly an advisory committee member, and he shouldn't be speaking about a female member of council that way. Um, and we adjudicated that, and, and we agreed that you know that the terminology maybe is not as egregious as some terminology, but y y you're not going to be calling a member of council a witch. Uh, publicly in in the the domain if right. you're an advisory committee member because that is a human rights issue interesting yeah. um and then right before we finish off here last question what is your favorite book that maybe helped you in some way or that you think could help other students and a favorite podcast well, your podcast, of course. Um, uh, but I'll also do a shout out to Myrna McCallum. She has a, an amazing podcast that's called The Trauma-Informed Lawyer, which mm -hmm. is very interesting and I think really helpful to lawyers and, and, uh, and other um, uh, folks that have careers where trauma and um, uh, the impact of trauma is, is part of the right. world that we work in and live in. Um, uh, in terms of books, uh, my favorite book of all time is To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but I will share with you, I've gone on, a, I've actually taken a little bit of a hiatus for the last couple of months and I've been working light. So not, not working, but working less. And part of what I wanted to do was read again. And I just read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I don't know if you've read it. It's nope. such a wonderful book. So I don't, it obviously didn't influence me to get where I am, but it was mm -hmm. uh, it's a really interesting book about um, young friends who come together and then create a video game and then create a company. And like seeing the evolution of the relationship of these two young people as they grow in this very successful business, I think is actually probably a good read for everybody. And it's also just beautifully written. Okay, yeah. I see. Well, yeah. thank you very much for coming on. It's It's been a pleasure. And you know, hopefully there's a few things that you listeners have you know, grab from this conversation and could use in your Well, I hope it's or... not take calculus. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for I having mean, me. Thank you very much.